You're listening to From the Front Lines, a special podcast from WUFT during the COVID-19 pandemic. This podcast provides weekly updates on Florida's coronavirus response with a particular focus on North Central Florida. Each week, From the Front Lines will feature community leaders and frontline workers working to reopen their communities safely during these challenging times. Hello, I'm your host, Ryan Basquez, and this is From the Front Lines. Frontline workers have been at it for over four months now in the state of Florida. In some ways, they face the same challenges day in and day out, and in others, they face new ones as this pandemic continues and evolves. We wanted to check back in this week with frontline workers to see what's new and what has stayed the same. We'll hear from those new to the front lines of this pandemic. We'll also talk to pediatricians about what they are seeing happen with the state's youngest at-risk group. And the last thing any frontline worker wanted to see this week... The next several hours will be crucial as Isaias passes over Hispaniola. The mountainous island could help to weaken the storm. However, this is a large system, and even if it stays offshore of Florida's east coast, there will still likely be high surf, heavy rainfall, and some gusty winds, especially for locations near the coast. We check in on how one county is preparing for the eventuality of a tropical storm during this pandemic. This week, Gabriella Paul set out to discover what it's like to be new to the front line in Florida's hospitals and what that means for the next generation of frontline workers in the nation's hotspot for coronavirus. Maite Diaz is a clinical coordinator at Tampa General Hospital and an accredited CRNA, or Certified Registered Nurse Anesthetist. She helps nursing students meet their clinical hours in order to graduate from their respective programs. Different schools have different start dates. Some schools are front-loaded, some schools are integrated. So they do um, clinical and didactic at the same part. And with that being said, just some schools have different, start off with just different requirements for time that the student spends in the clinical setting. Regardless of how and when nursing students complete their clinical hours, Diaz said students are all expected to meet the same benchmark of hands-on experience before becoming licensed practitioners. At TGH and hospitals statewide, coronavirus complicated what training the next generation of frontline workers looked like since March. It was the end of March, probably beginning of April, when we had our last student that left the clinical setting. And she left when the hospital said we couldn't have students there anymore. And the day the Tampa General said no more was her last day there. But um, it took two months to get students back, and that was June 1st. For Emma Tardrew, a spring graduate of UF's nursing program, that meant completing her degree in quarantine with virtual clinical hours instead of gaining hands-on clinical experience. We just kind of did online things. Um, We did Zoom sessions and we discussed modules and scenarios that we would do on our own time. And then we would talk about it with our instructor and answer questions and, and how we would go about different clinical situations if we were actually performing them in person. Among the clinical hours Tardrew missed in person was an introductory rotation to an ICU unit of UF Health Shands Hospital, the same unit where she has landed a job as a registered RN starting tomorrow, August 1st. We had one weekend where we were going to be in intensive care, and we were supposed to do three 12-hour shifts in that unit. And funny enough, the unit that I got assigned as my clinical rotation is actually the unit that I will be working in. Diaz, the clinical coordinator at TGH, doesn't find it funny at all. In fact, she described it as a disservice to patients and staff if newly graduated nurses or other medical professionals are thrown into new clinical situations where they've had no hands-on introduction. So if students aren't hands-on in the clinical setting actually practicing these skills and getting this experience, their first interaction or their first 
you know, when they're going to be expected to do this, it's going to be hands-on on a live patient. That I, I wouldn't want to be that patient. I'm sure nobody out there would volunteer to be that patient, you know, and not that they don't have, I mean, they, they have the didactic training and they understand didactics, but they can't, sometimes it's, it's hard to put those two together. Dr. Neelam Jala, an infectious disease fellow at Orlando Health Orlando Regional Medical Center, understands the value of using the clinic as her classroom as well, especially during the pandemic. This is a unique time to get uh, training. She's not new to the front lines, but even after completing six years of medical school in India, three years of residency in Ohio, and over a year into her infectious disease fellowship at Orlando Health now, she's had to remain an eager student of medicine. So this is ongoing learning for all of us everyone in the field of healthcare um, to come in with an open mind. Things are changing every single day. So I asked her what it's like being an infectious disease fellow on the front lines of a pandemic. This, this COVID-19 is emerging infectious disease. It's an ongoing pandemic and this is new for everyone. So we all are learning on the go. Things have been different. Um, compared to last year and last few months, we are we are learning as a fellow to review a lot of new data and uh, new publications on daily basis. As a fellow or being in medicine, we are always taught that um, we should be practicing evidence-based medicine. But during the current time of pandemic, uh, this evidence is changing constantly. Without a doubt, it's a particularly daunting time to join the front line of healthcare workers. Emma Tarju, who starts tomorrow at UF Health Shands, told me what it feels like. On one hand, it's like it would be a really awesome opportunity to be working in a COVID unit because here I am like starting out my career and affecting a global pandemic. And on the other hand, I was like all like experienced nurses are trying to figure out COVID and how to go about it. And I don't know how they're going to train me when they're under that stress. Tomorrow, Tarju starts in a non-COVID ICU unit. She had mixed feelings about the news, but overwhelmingly relief. I think when I found that out, I was relieved in a sense just because I really want to learn as much as I can and I just don't want like, I feel like it's just like a lot of pressure to start out in those conditions, you know. We've seen thousands lose their lives to coronavirus, but what about the challenges of bringing life into this world during a pandemic? Kristen Moorhead asked physician's assistant for Florida Women's Health in Ocala, Michelle Shinham, about what it's like to work in the field of obstetrics during COVID-19. What has changed about OBGYN services since the COVID-19 pandemic started? The governor issued that we could only see, you know, emergency visits. Um, we had to stop doing well exams. That lasted for seven weeks, and then we were allowed to resume any type of visit. We did have to reduce our hours and reduce our staff. We weren't receiving the revenue needed you know, to maintain full capacity. Since we've been able to see full capacity, all you know, annuals and all problems, then we have been fine as far as the revenue is concerned. Our business is thriving. We're super busy because a lot of women are playing catch up, trying to get in their annuals now. We have made sanitation and personal protective equipment changes. We used to not need to glove up for basic skin-to-skin -skin contact, which does provide for 
a better exam, like if you're trying to feel for breast lumps, it can be a little challenging through a glove. But now we are using gloves for every patient contact and all of our patients are required to wear a mask upon entry into the office. All of our employees also are masking and we do temperature screenings upon entry with our patients. Women are able to get a full comprehensive female focused exam and any tests that they would need. We're still doing any procedures, surgeries. We're operating as normal now. And what are patients feeling right now? They mostly have concerns about community exposure. I've had a lot of comments from patients saying that they feel very safe here because they appreciate having to have their temperature checked and having to require a mask upon entry and seeing all of our employees wearing masks. What's the most difficult part of being an OBGYN during COVID-19? I don't mind the, you know, extra sanitary precautions and masking. I'm happy to do my part in that. So I'm not even worried about how that impacts me, you know, as a healthcare provider. I think the most challenging part was trying to make our office survive the decreased patient visits when we weren't allowed to see annuals for seven weeks. What would your advice be to a pregnant person who may be scared during this time? My advice would be you need to come in um, for your normal screenings, you know, during pregnancy. And of course, if there's any problems, you need to come in. The risk of catching COVID-19 from a medical office setting is extremely low because, of course, we are all taking those precautions seriously for sanitizing and universal masking and gloving. And is there anything else you'd like to add? The bottom line is we are here for our female population and you should not be afraid to come in. We're going to protect you as best we can. And we have had no cases of COVID with our employees since we have adopted the universal masking and extra sanitizing and gloving ever since March. So apparently we're doing it right. The coronavirus doesn't seem to impact children's health the same way as other at-risk groups, but that doesn't mean that there aren't concerns. Taylor Levesque spoke to pediatricians about how COVID-19 is affecting their patients. According to the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, ages 4 and younger make up 1.6%, and ages 5 to 17 make up 5.5% of overall cases in the United States. In Boca Raton, Dr. Chad Rudnick of Boca VI Pediatrics says many of his patients have tested positive for the virus. COVID-19, the reason why it's difficult, especially in children, is that the majority of children are going to have very mild illness. Rudnick says although the symptoms are mild, they are also very common. They have symptoms that can resemble any other common cold that they may have. So it can be a fever, runny nose, nasal congestion, it can be a cough, they can have belly pain, they can have diarrhea. All of the same symptoms come from any number of other viruses that we deal with on on any given day, week, or year. In Gainesville, Dr. Tom Benton of Benton Pediatrics says his office now provides telemedicine visits to limit the amount of patients in the office and exposure to staff. I think everybody's at risk, and and I think it's important to be cautious, and so so I'm trying to do that. Benton Pediatrics also has the capability to provide coronavirus testing to patients. We put on our personal protective equipment. 
out to the car and examine them there. The patient's parents get to know uh, pretty quickly if uh, have COVID. That is, uh, in some cases, a cause of relief, in other cases, a cause to action. For Sunshine Pediatrics in Ocala, Dr. Madhukar Srinath says his office is not providing testing to patients, but is focused on educating parents on the steps they should take if their child is showing symptoms. I would first do a televisit, give them advice what to do, if they need to come to me or go to hospital. Uh, so that way I was trying to keep them at home with all the precautions. Dr. Rudnick is also focused on educating families on what to do if someone in their family is sick. Everyone in our office are Johns Hopkins trained contact tracers. So what that means is that we have all taken the course to discuss with families what they need to do now that they've had a positive case in the family and how we can make sure that to identify and tell anyone that they have possibly exposed. So the first is for the child who tests positive, they have to go under what's called isolation. They have to be away from everybody for 10 days from their, their first time that they had symptoms. Anyone who's in their house, though, anyone that they've had close contact with, they have to go under what's called quarantine. Quarantine for those family members or, or friends or other people they were, that they were around, all of those people have to stay home for 14 days and monitor their symptoms. Although many children do show symptoms, many others are asymptomatic. Rudnick says regardless of symptoms, people of all ages can spread the virus. All children can spread COVID-19 to others. Young children spread it at a little bit less than older children do. We, we've seen that kids over the age of 10 can spread maybe as much as an adult can. But just because a child is four or five years old doesn't mean they cannot spread it. While it might be less, less does not mean zero. And adds that it's important the number of coronavirus cases in Florida decrease before reopening schools. In a state like ours, who has one of the highest rates of COVID-19 infections and hospitalizations and death rates in our area, if we lead in that category, we cannot be the leaders in getting kids back to school first. Srinath believes everyone has a role in the community to help bring the number of cases down. But right now, we are in a different phase when things are just exploding. So at this near future, there's no hope unless as a society, we all have you know take some responsibility and everybody plays their part, then it's possible that we'll bring the number very down. When the number is very down, then we can open up gradually. Benton advises everyone to continue to take precautions by washing your hands and wearing a mask. According to the CDC, there are over 4 million COVID-19 cases in the United States. Tropical storms and hurricanes may be a routine part of the summer months for most Floridians, but hurricane preparation during COVID-19 may change things. Anthony Montalto spoke with Levy County Assistant Emergency Management Director David Peaton to find out what Levy County officials are doing to prepare as a storm turns in the Atlantic. What are some of Levy County's plans to be dealing with a hurricane while also in a pandemic situation? Well, anytime you deal with a hurricane, that's always brings its unique challenges. Of course, with the COVID-19 pandemic going on, there are several more challenges. Some of those specifically, of course, are keeping our residents safe if they have to come to a shelter. But of course, along with that is the fact that we're dealing with a pandemic that is happening across not only in the entire state of Florida, but the, across the entire country. So we always have to think about how 
we may have to worry about delayed resources, delayed assistance should a real bad storm come through. So some of the things that we do here in Levy County are things like look at how our sheltering operations are going to work. How can we put things in place to keep our shelter residents and our staff workers as safe as possible while also being able to provide a place that they can go to for safety from the storm. Also, what can we start stockpiling now in the county to help bridge the gap on the amount of time that it may take for resources to come in? Can we uh, stock some extra personal protective equipment? Is there a way to make sure that we have tarps or some of these other things in place if we need them? Definitely makes sense. I know there's a lot of moving parts, especially during hurricane season. I know you mentioned shelters. So is the county planning to have more shelters available for social distancing? So with Levy County's limited resources, unfortunately, we our only real option for shelters for any type of hurricane or what we would call a wind event, meaning that the winds produce a significant danger, is we have to use our schools, which are our current shelters now. They're the only buildings that we have available to use the schools. So that puts us in a little bit of a bind when it comes to social distancing. However, there are things that we can do, such as provide extra personal protective equipment inside the shelters, provide masks, provide extra hand washing stations, extra hand sanitizing stations for our shelter residents to be able to at least be as protective as possible. But one of the things that we definitely want to make sure that people are trying to do now before the storm actually hits is see if you can put a plan into place before the hurricane hits. If you have an area that you can go to that's outside of the danger zone, that's always ideal. Do you have friends or family that live outside of Levy County that you may be able to stay with should the worst happen? Do you have a plan on where you're going to bring your pets if the storm comes through? Also, if you do have to come to a shelter, do you have any other type of personal protective equipment? Do you have your own hand sanitizer? Do you have a mask? These are things that we want our residents to also think about while we're preparing for the worst of hurricane season still to come. So would you say that you're advising people if they do need to come to a shelter that they bring their own equipment if possible? If you can, we definitely want people to bring their own personal protective equipment because that's what they're comfortable using. You know, if you have your own mask, you're comfortable wearing that particular mask. However, we definitely understand that many people may not have their own, so we want to make sure that we have that available to those shelter residents if they show up and they really need it. We'll have it for them. Of course. So I know you mentioned that most, if not all, the shelters in Levy County are at school. So with school reopening in just a couple of weeks, what challenges does that pose? Unfortunately, any time that hurricane season comes around, it always seems like the worst part of hurricane season is right when school's in session anyway. So as far as having to close schools to open the shelters, that's something that we deal with pretty much every year. But our biggest challenge we want to make sure is that we can do is we pay very close attention to the cleaning of these schools after the shelters close. We want to make sure that we bring in some professional companies that can really clean these schools top to bottom after we close these shelters. Because, again, we don't want to leave anything to chance. If we can take just a little bit of an extra step to help keep our residents, our children safe, that's what we want to do. I was really wondering about that with cleaning before, during, after, because obviously you want to make sure that it's safe for the people who are there sheltering from the storm, but you also want to make sure it's safe for the kids and teachers going back to school. Do you have any advice for people who need to stock up for the storm, but maybe afraid of going out and shopping during a pandemic? 
take the time now to build your kits. If you have to build it slowly because you are wary of going out, any time that you get a chance to go to the store, pick up just a couple of things. You don't have to pick up everything. You don't have definitely don't clean the shelves out. You know, there's a big difference between panicking and preparedness. Pick up a couple of things. If you go to our website at levydisaster.com, you can actually find a nice resource on there that you can break up your disaster supply kit over an eight-week period so that you don't have to worry about making a special trip to the store to pick up your supplies. So many people feel that in order to make their disaster kit that they have to make special trips, and they and that's just not necessary. Anytime you're out doing your regular grocery shopping, go ahead and pick up a couple of things. When you go and get some milk, pick up a pack of batteries. These are all things that we want to do to make it as, uh, as least stressful as possible, but also that you're working towards that preparedness goal. From the Front Lines is a production of the Innovation News Center at the College of Journalism and Communications at the University of Florida. Thank you to our producers, Taylor Levesque, Anthony Montalto, Kristen Moorhead, Melissa Fato, Gabriella Paul, and Cameron Lund. Also, thanks to our fellow Florida public media stations for their contributions to this podcast. And a special thank you to Matt Abramson and Craig Lee for their work behind the scenes. We'd love to hear from you, so if you have a story to share with From the Front Lines, please contact WUFT on Facebook or Twitter, or send an email to news at WUFT.org. That's news at WUFT.org. Join us next Friday for another edition of From the Front Lines. I'm your host, Ryan Vasquez, and of course, thanks for listening.